This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. And I'm Jonathan. Today, well, okay, so here's the thing. I unexpectedly came across a book about another incredibly important figure who played a part in this season's episode, and it was a person I'd been searching for quality work on already, but I've been kind of out of luck so far. Now, having found some great reading about this person, I couldn't possibly have moved on without sharing what I've learned. It'll not only back up so much of what's already been explained here on the podcast already, but it'll also prove to catapult us into new avenues as we try to wrap our heads around the complexity of the Norman conquest of England. I think you're going to really enjoy this one, folks. But first, let me urge each of you to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using and to share the show with others you know and on your social media. Also, great stuff's happening on Patreon as well. In this Patreon series, we'll be following the goings-on of Wales, Scotland, Ireland, Normandy, and others, of course, as William struggles with the fierce rebelliousness of the proud Anglo-Saxons he'd unseated in England. So if you're curious about the whole picture, you'll only find it on Patreon. All right, here we go, folks. Today's episode, episode 78, is entitled Behind Every Great Man, Part 1. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. As I said, folks, I am excited about this one, so let's jump right into it. According to Tracy Borman, author of the phenomenal retelling of one of the greatest figures of the 11th century, we know next to nothing about the earliest years of this episode's protagonist. In the book Queen of the Conqueror, Borman writes, quote, Even the date of her birth cannot be deduced with any certainty from the surviving sources. At the earliest, it would have been toward the end of the year 1031, end quote. This would make her future husband around three or four years old at this time, but even his date of birth is questionable. We mark him at about 1027. Now, three years into her parents' marriage, this little girl was born. She was born into a level of luxury that not even a fraction of humanity could even fathom at the time. Her father was Count Baldwin V, and her mother was Adela, the daughter of King Robert II of France, also known as King Robert the Pious. Borman gives us more insight into why Baldwin V became the Count of Flanders in the first place. She writes, quote, William of Jumiege, who was a direct contemporary, claims that it was not consummated, that is the marriage, until 1031, and that the long period of waiting was one of the factors that incited Baldwin to rebel against his father in 1031, end quote. Now, see, apparently it took them three years to actually consummate the marriage, hence the rebellion, I suppose. Hey, men have raised armies over smaller things, I'm pretty sure. Now, Borman continues with, quote, In fact, young Baldwin had already rebelled soon after the wedding. It seemed that an alliance with French royal blood had given him an inflated sense of his own importance, and he therefore contested his father's position as count. The two men came to terms in 1030, and a truce was concluded, whereby they agreed to rule jointly, end quote. Baldwin V and Adela, it said, had several children, but the only ones we know of exactly are another Baldwin, named after dad, of course, Robert, named after grandpa, the king of France, 
And finally, Matilda. And here we have our protagonist of the episode, the great Matilda of Flanders, the little firecracker mentioned on the last episode, actually. Now, it makes sense that a little firecracker like Matilda would be born in a place like Flanders. Despite being connected to most of the nobility in France, the Flemish royal court presided over, as Borman puts it, quote-unquote, a notoriously lawless area where violence and uprisings were commonplace. She quotes from the life of St. Arnulf that says daily, excuse me, that says, quote, daily homicides and spilling of human blood had troubled the peace and quiet of the entire area. Thus, a great number of nobles, through the force of their prayers, convinced the bishop of the Lord to visit the places where this atrocious cruelty especially raged and to instruct the docile and bloody spirit of the Flemings in the interest of peace and concord, end quote. So, pretty well known there in uh, about Flanders. See, before Charlemagne, so we're talking way back, the county of Flanders was a largely Germanic-controlled region known as Pagus Flandrensis. But with Baldwin I marrying the daughter of King Charles the Bald, it became a county called Flanders in the 9th century. Today, we know the county of Flanders as Belgium, essentially. But a thousand years ago, it also included parts of northeastern France, northwestern Germany, and western Netherlands. At the time, it was largely wooded. It was a big wooded area, but tipped off the balance in population the further east you went inside the county, as the west was overwhelmingly swampy. And here's an interesting tidbit that brings the Belgium of a thousand years ago into a clearer light. Borman writes, quote, it seems that the populace, too, retained a certain primitivism. In 900, for example, Archbishop Falk of Reims scorned the inhabitants as being, quote-unquote, of barbarous savagery and language. Indeed, the Flemish soon became the butt of jokes among the more civilized nations, such as England and France, where they were derided for their crudity and backwardness. Their reputation had improved little by the late 12th century, when Richard of Devises advised a young man who was due to travel to England that he should expect nothing but ignorance and boorishness from Cornishmen, quote-unquote, as we in France consider our Flemings, end quote from Borman. And as possible further evidence that this might be true, I recall the story about Earl Harold Godwinson being blown off course in the early 1060s on his way to Normandy, only to land in a pirate-infested coastal town and be heroically, I say in quotations, heroically rescued by one Duke William of Normandy, who used the opportunity to coax an highly unlikely thought supposed admission that should King Edward die, Harold would give his fealty to Duke William. Remember that scene? Though I do doubt the validity of the story, it doesn't change the fact that it's just another example in the records of the reputation that Flanders had, in this case, of a uh, pirate-ridden sort of swamp. Either way, by all accounts, major overhauls to the Flemish image were achieved between 988 and 1035, which was the reign of Count Baldwin IV. And his son, Count Baldwin V, continued to see these overhauls through. But reputations are hard to change, especially the bad ones. 
bad reputation or not, Flanders was experiencing some pretty great times during the 11th century, to be quite honest. Coasts were, you know, cleaned up a bit. Roads were slowly secured each decade more and more. Trade routes were established and strengthened even. Wealth was certainly accumulated and marriage alliances were made. All in all, Flanders under, under Baldwin's four and five, it was a relatively prosperous place to find yourself. Though, make no mistake, it was still, you know, compared to places like France, Normandy specifically, and England, and Burgundy, just to name a few, Flanders was still a bit of a backwards place. Again, reputations are pretty hard to change. It helps when folks around Europe saw the Flemish counts as men held in high esteem. William of Poitiers once wrote of Baldwin V, he says, quote, A man of great power who towered above the rest, end quote, as well as writing, quote unquote, the wisest of men. Now this from Borman, mind you, who continues with, quote, Counts, marquises, dukes, even archbishops of the highest dignity, were struck dumb with admiration whenever the duty of their office earned them the presence of this distinguished guest. Kings, too, revered and stood in awe of his greatness. End quote. Well, then she quotes William of Malmesbury from his Deeds of the Kings of the English, when Malmesbury writes, A man admirable alike for loyalty and wisdom, gray-haired yet with the vigor of youth, and of exalted position as husband of the king's sister. Okay, the Poitiers one. I mean, this guy's sniveling knows no bounds, but but Malmesbury too? I've learned to question just about everything Poitiers says, at least in tone and motive, but Malmesbury makes me think that Baldwin V might have actually been someone to contend with. Jury's still out for me on that one. But the fact remains, though, that Matilda his daughter, had some serious, serious pedigree. So as we've said, Matilda grew up in a pretty rough area, all things considered, but she was still guarded from much of it. So what was life like for Matilda growing up? Borman explains, writing, quote, Matilda's upbringing was superintended by her mother. As such, she had a powerful female role model from her very earliest days, even though women were assigned the inferior role in marriage, politics, and society in general, Adela's relationship with Count Baldwin V was a marriage of equals. Not for her the traditional duties of a consort, which were confined to producing heirs and leading a godly life. End quote. So, Basically, Adela wasn't having the whole wives should be seen and only heard when giving birth kind of thing. You know, just wasn't her thing. Now, spoiler alert. Well, at least we know who Matilda got it from. It seems that Adela thoroughly enjoyed the court, being a part of integral conversations within the county, alongside her husband. Borman reports that her name appears in more than half of all Flemish charters during her lifetime. I mean, that's a pretty staggering number for a woman in that age. In comparison, quote, few of her peers enjoyed such prominence in the political life of their kingdoms, and it is rare to find a consort's name on more than a handful of legal documents, end quote. Now, mothers of nobility had a serious role to play in their child's upbringing. 
It wasn't just birth and then wet nurses and finally either servants or knights to take over their children's educations. Mothers oversaw all for their, for their daughters and up to a certain point, the age of seven or eight, remember, for boys, as they most likely entered into the service of a knight at the age or entered into the service of God. Borman contends that wives, for this reason, tended to be superior to their husbands in intelligence during this time, which I wouldn't exactly deny. And I know the females out there listening are going, well, yeah. Borman writes, quote, The early 11th century was one of the most enlightened periods in the education of women, when it was taken every bit as seriously as, and often more seriously than, that of their male counterparts. Daughters were encouraged to spend their leisure time cultivating their knowledge through reading, while sons would undertake more active pursuits such as hunting and training for warfare, end quote. Now, Borman's careful to compare this to later centuries, as the focus on the education of women does gradually diminish until the late 1800s or so here in the West. And shoot, there are places in the Middle East and Asia where this access and encouraging culture of, you know, the encouraging culture of education for girls, there are places that are still waiting to blossom, but I suppose that's not relevant to our topic here per se. In fact, with regards to Matilda's education, she may have even been sent away to the monks of St. Peter in Ghent to be educated for a spell. What we can attest to for certain is that Matilda was a highly, (laughs) I want to say that word again just to emphasize it correctly, she was a highly intelligent woman as well as a highly educated woman by the time of her marriage to, of course, William the Conqueror. She was fluent in Flemish, Latin, and French, which is more than most men could say in those days, nobility or otherwise, though reading and writing were different matters altogether. Even Emma of Normandy, who married King Ethelred II of England, and then Canute the Great after that, and was also known to be highly, highly educated, well, even Emma needed a monk to write down her life story. Borman supports this claim by saying that, according to the records, Matilda's signature was a cross in the elaborate Jerusalem style, which means she was cultivated enough to recognize it and adopt it as her symbol, but not educated enough to write her own name. What's more is her lifelong devotion to the church. Hold on to that one. And this stems from her childhood being completely immersed in liturgy and Christian texts to study. Namely, of course, the the Bible, the books of the Bible. Borman reports that her mother was, quote, instrumental in Baldwin V's reform of the church in Flanders, end quote. Colleges, abbeys, across France and England, these were mainly spearheaded by noble women in the 11th century, as the men were preoccupied, of course, with defending their territory, taking territory from others, expanding trade networks, or establishing marriage alliances for their children. Besides, Matilda's piety kind of ran in the family. I mean, her maternal grandfather's name was Robert the Pious for a reason, remember. And her aunt, Judith of Flanders on her dad's side, was known around Europe for her devotion to the church. Her mother even commissioned a biography of the towering female ruler in the 10th century in Italy named Adelaide, who was quote-unquote praised for that rare ability to combine piety with power. 
Now, Borman continues in her own words, quote, the evidence suggests that she certainly encouraged Matilda to challenge the traditional perceptions of women's place in society. Little wonder that the late 10th century has been described as the zenith of female power, end quote. Now, unfortunately for Matilda, though, the tides had shifted and her 11th century brought a return to a more male-centered rule across the continent. However, fortunately for Matilda, her mother was freaking Adela, the wife of a man who treated her as an equal in most affairs of state and a woman who drew upon the inspiration of these 10th century women. It was clear that Adela had plans for Matilda. Firecracker indeed. Besides her education, Matilda was a force to be reckoned with, merely by her indomitable spirit, one cultivated through her father's blood for sure and nurtured through her mother's ferocity of will. But her beauty, it's said in many, many sources, was arresting. Borman writes, quote-unquote, Of all the chroniclers, William of Jumiege was probably the only one who saw Matilda in person, and he attested that she was very beautiful. And this reputation for beauty outlasted the centuries, too. Snorri Sturluson, the Icelander who wrote the famous Chronicle of the Kings of Norway, wrote that she was, quote-unquote, one of the most beautiful women that could be seen. Borman also mentions the poem by Bishop Felipe of Tours, this from the 1200s. A girl who knew much and was very beautiful and worthy, wise, courtly, eloquent. Now, furthermore, Archdeacon Fulcroix of Beauvais, who lived during her lifetime, wrote two epigrams in her honor, Borman, Borman says, as well as lauding her as, quote, courageous, prudent, sober, and just. Now, qualities that made her superior among her sex, he gave her the highest accolade possible by declaring, quote, unquote, she was made equal to Blessed Mary in her virtue. That's some pretty big compliments there by uh, Archdeacon Fulcroix Beauvais. The list goes on as to the testaments to Matilda's person and personality. But beyond written testimony and commentary, we also have some physical evidence as well. See, in the year 1562, France was undergoing some pretty massive religious upheaval. And the abbey that Matilda's bones lay, that of La Trinité, was under assault from rioters. The place was ransacked, it was set aflame but not before the nuns of La Trinité, having overseen Matilda's body for centuries already, well, they whisked the bones away until the problems in France subsided and order was restored. Her bones were then returned, put in a new casket, and buried again in the same spot. See, jump a little bit. In 1961, it turns out, French archaeologist Michel Debord exhumed the bones and and what was found jolted the world of medieval archaeology. Michel de Bouard confirmed what so many of, chron of the chroniclers recorded. Matilda was exceptionally beautiful, sure, but bones wouldn't hold such information. What the bones did hold was the size of the body it supported in life. Matilda was said to be as short as she was a knockout. The bones confirmed they belonged to a female of around Matilda's age of death, and most importantly, 
they suggested this person was but four feet, two inches tall. What we will learn about her marriage to William will put this fact into a stark relief. (laughs) So she belonged to one of the wealthiest and most influential noble families in all of not just France, but of Europe at large. She was stunningly beautiful and she was intimidatingly educated. Matilda Matilda of Flanders, well, she was a catch, folks. And there was one strapping potential suitor who made his way to her father's court. But he didn't come from Normandy. No, this fella sailed across the channel. That's right, from England. Now, at the time, Matilda was a youthful 12 years of age, but this was quite common for the 11th century. To our modern sensibilities, this was tantamount to sin of the highest degree, let alone an outright crime. But we have to transport ourselves to that time period to begin to wrap our heads around such behavior. People didn't live to, you know, 65, 75, or even past 100 years like today. Many women died in their early to mid-20s due to childbirth or the complications from having so many children by then. The men... They usually died hunting big game, sailing or fighting. Twelve years old, I think it's safe to say, is (laughs) unthinkably gross today. But time was ticking back then. And without such practices, worldwide practices, I should add, not just in Europe. See, we can gratefully, albeit reluctantly, no doubt, thank our ancestors for it. We wouldn't be here without it. Those are just the unfortunate truths of medieval marriage. Girls were married off quite young. Matilda, at 12, was up for courting, and her father was keen to make the most of this little gem at his utility. The man's name was Britric. He was descended from the royals of Wessex, and he was stupidly rich, though he was no earl. He was, as Borman states, one of the greatest thanes in all England— throughout the 1040s, the earliest years of King Edward, remember. His lands stretched from Worcestershire westward into Cornwall, centering around Gloucestershire. Borman writes, quote, Some said he was second only to the king in wealth. The Tewkesbury estate alone brought him an annual income of 100 pounds, equivalent to around 70,000 pounds today, which for our American listeners, is still equivalent to about the same in USD, $70,000. So for the time, dude was loaded. And do you remember how I called him a potential suitor? Well, he was actually sent specifically to Flanders as an ambassador of sorts. He made several trips, it seems, between King Edward's court and Count Baldwin V's court, so many that he became somewhat of a mainstay for a number of years throughout the 1040s in Flanders. Matilda grew up seeing this man in her father's presence numerous times, and she became quite enamored with him. At some point, by Matilda's 18th or 19th year, Matilda began to manifest a vision of the future that she wished to create for herself. And this Bridgerk fella? seemed to play a central role in those daydreams. Now, Britrick was well-known around the Kingdom of England, known for being a, a confidant of sorts to King Edward himself. And both Matilda and her father knew this. What's more, Britrick was tall, and he was handsome. He was handsome with, like, that that old Anglo-Saxon wavy blonde hair. 
He was also not only handsome and wealthy and had the king's ear, but he wasn't disgustingly old like so many other men who marry a young lady in those days. Britrick, it seems, according to the records, may have only been approaching 30 years of age. Uh, Yeah, not great, but a much more palatable age difference for Matilda. Maybe a decade or so. There came a time, though, when Britrick left Flanders. And this time, it might have been for good. But as Borman states, quote, her affection did not diminish. And without pausing to seek her father's approval, she sent a messenger to England to offer herself in marriage, end quote. Yeah. So Matilda, she launched into her own betrothal negotiations to hell with the men in, the, in her life doing it. A very Matilda of Flanders thing to do for sure. Now, Borman writes, quote, this was an astonishingly audacious act in an age when daughters were expected to meekly accept the fate that was decided for them by their parents, end quote. Matilda, she defied such archaic conventions. Matilda did a lot of things throughout her life that seemed to defy expectations of her role and station in life. But was she wrong in choosing Britrick? Well, if you're Count Baldwin V, she was probably spot on. He was in a unique position here, and he could have done far, far worse than attaching himself to the court of King Edward of England through his daughter's marriage. Matilda's political acumen was on point. But this doesn't change the fact that Matilda's challenge to the social norms of nobility, uh, the noble intermarriage, I should say, quote, as Borman says, quote, would have sent shockwaves throughout the commental court and noble society at large, end quote. And furthermore, Matilda was putting her entire reputation on the line here by making the first move and in such a public way. And not just her reputation either. The reputation of the entire Flemish court was at risk. And it went even deeper than that. At the time, for a girl to speak out and advocate for herself so forthrightly in the dark corners of the rumor mill around European nobility, well, she must have been, you know, compromised. Oh, come on, don't make me say it. We're talking about... um, Matilda's sacred honor here. Yeah. Matilda risked everything in proposing a marriage alliance with this Englishman. And Britrick, he sadly rejected her outright. I mean, we don't have the exact reasons, but we know that much. And if a foreign man of a lower station in life you know, compare a thane in England to a commental daughter in a prestigious house on the mainland in the 11th century. So if a man of a lower station in life like Britrick turned down a marriage like this, then, well, there must be something about her, right? Or her father's court. Borman writes, quote, at a stroke, her prospects of making a good marriage would have been destroyed, end quote. As for her reputation, she was publicly humiliated and insulted beyond reproach. In the late 1040s, Matilda of Flanders was at her lowest point. Matilda's first act of independence, Borman writes, had backfired spectacularly, but there was little that she could do. 
Suppressing her fury, she seemed to put the humiliating incident behind her. End quote. Now put a pin in this incident, would you? Just, just trust me on that one. Now that Matilda was back on the market, Count Baldwin V wasted no time putting her back out there in an effort to, you know, beat the reception of the humiliation in various courts around Europe, trying to, trying to, trying to fly faster than the news, you could say. The news would have certainly reached Normandy, but William was also a horse of a different color, you could say. His peculiar birth, remember his father was the Duke and his mother was a tanner's daughter of a very low station, put him at a steep disadvantage on the playing field of noble marriage alliances, and following his astounding success at Valesdun, he was now in possession of a shocking amount of clout around France particularly. There wasn't a French leader who was ready to take him on, that's been proven, which gave him a bit of a respite to head out and look to create that good old-fashioned dynasty. But we know William, not just any partner, would do. William may have been a man who cut his own path and wrote his own rules, but he was also a man who could be tempted, excuse me, who could be tempered with the right woman. A man like that isn't ever, you know, domesticated, as the age-old description for marriage jokes around. But he could be contended with, and even molded, and, well, tempered. But to contend with a man like William took an equally fiery woman, and female virtues at the time consisted of godliness and obedience and the ability to give her husband children, sons in particular. In May 1048, the records indicate that both Duke William and Count Baldwin V were witnessing a charter for King Henry I of France in the city of Saint-Lys, just north of Paris. Knowing that Count Baldwin V had already rejected other proposals for Matilda's hand in marriage, no doubt creating a sense of value to offset the recent humiliation, it's said by William of Jumiege that he and William hit, off, hit it off nicely. It seems Baldwin was open to receiving William's terms. Now, if anything, this would put an immediate halt to the decades-long, I suppose you could say, Cold War between Normandy and Flanders. Now, they'd been feuding off and on for quite a while, and it had become more tedious than effective, nothing more than a drain on resources and wealth for both sides. And to be honest, at that point, the original reasons might have lost their immediacy and importance to those actually doing the fighting. Borman adds another reason, though. She writes, quote, A union with this powerful Norman neighbor would greatly enhance Flanders' growing status in Western Europe. Moreover, he was particularly in need of support at this time because the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry III, was threatening his frontiers. And King Edward of England had assembled a fleet to help serve against Flanders if necessary. In such circumstances, it was vital for Baldwin to make a friend of the Norman Duke rather than add him to the already dangerous coalition of adversaries. End quote. And through these preliminary negotiations, Count Baldwin was careful to keep this all a secret from Matilda. He didn't need her, uh, you know, seeming too eager or outright rejecting William publicly. A full-scale collapse of negotiations and, you know, knowing the young brash duke, well, it might possibly outright hostilities would occur should she decide to make another, you know, 
independent decision. When William's envoys arrived in early 1049 in Count Baldwin's Flemish court, he received them graciously and showed them exceptional honor and favor during their stay. And at this point, there was no keeping it from Matilda any longer. She learned of these negotiations. Borman narrates what happened next like this, quote, Far from sharing her father's enthusiasm, she flatly refused to, to lower herself so far as to marry a mere bastard. Worse still, she made no secret of her rejection, and it was soon being gossiped about throughout the court. Count Baldwin was mortified and admonished his daughter for outrageous defiance. Women were expected to obey their male superiors in all matters. He was determined that Matilda would not jeopardize the alliance. But in vain, he urged her to remember her filial duty to obey him in all things. She remained implacable, a telling indication of the same force of character that would bring a conqueror to heel. End quote. Well, news like that, especially from this particular court, didn't take long to reach William's ears. He was still back in Normandy. He immediately, in a full rage, leapt upon his horse with a contingent of men and rode straight to Bruges, to the seat of Flanders, to little Matilda, the woman who had just publicly humiliated him. Matilda, it said, was stepping out of church when he arrived, sweating and furious, that is, William, not Matilda, sweating and furious. In front of God and all in attendance, he swung his leg over his horse and landed hard on the dirt. There was no doubt to Matilda and those she was with who this, this animal was approaching her in a huff, who he was. I imagine a young woman like Matilda standing defiant as William approached her. She must have known why he was here. And as we've said on the podcast before, William's reputation was known far and wide by this time. And by the time William reached her, fear, no doubt, must have been welling up inside her, ready to burst. But I maintain that I am positive she would have stood strong, knowing what I know about Matilda. William grabbed Matilda by the hair, towering over her four-foot, two-inch body, and he threw her into the dirt. We're only told that he proceeded to kick her, using his heels and spurs both, as well as pummeling her with, with his closed fists. We don't exactly know how long this went on, but no one stopped him, and she certainly took the beating in force. It only ceased when William had burned his anger out. He walked back to his horse wordlessly, it said, and he rode home. Now, having been beaten, according to the records, to within an inch of her life, and I'm not exactly thinking that's an exaggeration either, knowing William, but Matilda, having already shared her disgust for the bastard duke, would no doubt have gone back to the safety of her bedchamber, chamber, nursed her wounds, and moved on. But that's not what happened, though. Matilda changed her tune. I don't know, maybe it was a kink, I... But something changed Matilda's mind, and the records indicate that she would have no other husband than William, since, quote, he must be a man of great courage and high daring to have come and beat me in my own father's place, end quote. So says the Chronicle of Baudouin, I hope I pronounced that right, Baudouin, a 13th century retelling of the situation. Now, Borman put it best, however, when she wrote, quote, 
It seems unlikely that a betrothal between two members of the most high-profile pro- families in Europe could begin with something akin to a tavern brawl, end quote. Unlikely, sure, the story is, but something happened, and William and Matilda were married soon after. But as we know from earlier episodes, this wasn't the end of their troubles. Matilda and William were subject to the papal decrees disallowing certain levels of consanguinity. From there, it would be William's indomitable spirit that would defy Pope Leo IX's statements, not allowing this marriage to be sanctioned by the church, which was nothing short of a death knell for medieval noble marriages, mind you. And Pope Leo IX, are you kidding me? Do you remember him? A couple like William and Matilda were hardly going to let something as trivial as, you know, a pope's decree stand in their way to do what they wanted to do. So, get married they did. And now that William and Matilda were married, we're going to pick up Matilda's version of the story of the Norman Conquest up on the next episode. And this is where, in my opinion, we really see Matilda begin to exert herself into the history books an unlikely feat for women in those days, mind you, making her an even more impressive figure, making her exactly the type of partner a man like William needed by his side. William and Matilda both lived a life defined by their defiance of conventions. This will not stop, and I I can't wait to tell you about it. (laughs) 